Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, slightly different, and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you can let me know your thoughts on the new format, and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that is at the Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. An interesting question, isn't it? I know we've been talking about this, you know, for the last few weeks and it's leading up into the, the webinar we've got in uh, nine days or so. I think for me, you know, I, I, when I look at the question, it's probably the first thing that pops into my mind is depends on the age and stage you're working at, you know, because I know you had your thoughts before where you said what's appropriate, what's right at what level and things like that. I think... You know, ultimately, if we're talking about a game model, it's how does that look if you're working with U9 players or if you're working with U19 players or U16 players? You know, what 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 are some of the things that we're we're trying to expect the players to be able to do, and how does that influence how we want them to play and what that looks like? Because I think, you know, a good example of this would be that we might have this perceived game model or view of the game in terms of what we see at the adult level but then you know and if we take finishing in as an example you know a lot of the top goal scorers have got a foot dominance they'll score more goals with with one of their dominant feet and they'll often move a one touch or a two touch finish typically in or inside the, the penalty area that's where most goals are scored but then interestingly, you know, if we look at like U9 as an example, you know, one touch finish, well, most of the finishes aren't with one touch, you know, on average is probably five plus. And then what does their game look like? You know, at the younger ages where there's a high emphasis on transitions and things like that. So I think ultimately it's just really recognising what age and stage you're at. Yes, you know, I mean, if we look at even goals in general and how many goals were assisted at U9 compared to senior football or under-21s, statistically, there's more goals that were assisted, meaning that 
that came from a pass from from a teammate that led to the goal compared to when it's U nines or <coughs> excuse me or U twelve where it might be a solo action. So again, how does that reflect your game model and some of the actions that we're looking for? It's quite an interesting point to be honest, because obviously there are some obvious differences in obviously the age groups and you know you've hit hit the nail on the head with one of them right there in that at a younger age group, typically more goals are scored as solo efforts, if you like. So the emphasis is much more on staying on the ball through a dribble or running with the ball, as opposed to through passing patterns or even just combination play as a whole. So I guess looking at that in terms of the influence on the game model, players fundamentally will have a an impact on that, right? And then it's just, I guess, looking at how you scale the, that model up and down across the age groups, looking at one what are we going after? Two, what are the key characteristics and more specifically game actions that take place within that? And I think this is really key where we start to look at the technical components and where the emphasis is around that and how we train that within our within our program. So I guess, you know, if, if you were to set one out, what would be the kind of the hierarchy of components that you'd be looking at? Because really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that at a young age, all we want to do is get the players comfortable with the ball in terms of being on it, dribbling with it, 1v1s, 2v2s or whatever that might look like. Maybe less emphasis on the passing aspect of it. So really, you know, what, at what stage would you start to kind of maybe focus on one or the other or would you, would you not do that at all? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think you're always obviously trying to improve all actions of the game. But then, you know, a phrase... I've certainly used a lot. Of, I can't remember who I heard it from first, but I really liked it where it was, don't make pass become the default. And I actually thought that was really interesting because at younger ages, the, you know, you look at a lot of coaches, they'll look at possession. And of course, you know, I mean, if you were to watch any of our U9 teams, you'll see them playing one-twos in the six-yard box. You'll see them building up, playing back to the keeper. And we've done that with, you know, and I've done that as a few of us have listening, you know, with grassroots players, if you can get them playing that way. We've even, obviously, really, really more advanced technical players. But then the danger comes is if coaches or parents are always screaming, pass, pass, you know, and that's the emphasis where we're, we're, we're focusing more on possession and more on how we're combining and connecting. Well, the danger then becomes is, as you just hinted there, Yaz, is that you're taking away that individual effort because now pass becomes the default. So when where does that opportunity come where players can go, actually, I'm going to look to drive with the ball. I'm going to play with individualism. I'm going to step into midfield. I'm going to dribble my way out of trouble. So I think there's got to be certain core moves or actions that we look for. And then as they sort of get to... Because initially, it's like, you know, when they're U9 and even younger it should really be an emphasis around me and my ball. Just fall in love with the ball, become really good at individual interacting with the ball and finding different ways. It's not to say you can't pass the ball and get good at passing and receiving, but it's just understanding cerebrally where they're at and what the priorities are. As you go through that pyramid, I think then it starts to become me and my teammate. And, and then as you get even older, I mean, the, the first stage we start to really talk about positions is... A, a real detail level is more when they get to 11 11, you fit and you fought and you 15, you can start to hone in on certain positions, but they still, you know, get opportunities to play in different positions. They might have a, um, uh, a more of a dominance in a certain type, but I think that's another reason why at the younger ages, 
we're encouraging them to play goalkeeper, play right back, play centre back, play centre mid, play striker because they get to develop their game understanding. And I think that relates to the game model because if you like the game model with the younger ages has got to be a simplification of the big game and it's got to look like their game. So if we know that they learn through transition, there's a lot of transitions. Perhaps one of the big things you just said is how do we stay on the ball? How do we break lines? How do we keep possession and find the free player or just find space, you know, attack together, defend together. And then you can build on that as a foundation because that gives you the, the platform to, to go from. You know, when you're at 9v9 and 11v11, you've now obviously got maybe clearer units. You've got clearer, perhaps maybe systems of play, certain more defined structures. Cognitively, they're getting more, obviously more developed in their brain. They're able to take on board more information. So you're not overloading their working memory. So then that's when you can start to think, okay, what other concepts can we start to introduce now? Because in people's game models, and this is a good topic to talk about, right, Yaz, is they'll have set pieces, they'll have restarts, they'll have, you know, what we're doing on these throw-ins, what we're doing on corner kicks, what we're doing. And I'm not saying that you can't work on corner kicks at U9 or U12 or whatever, but what I'm suggesting is that, and it'd be good to get your thoughts on this as well, is like, what is the, the importance here? Now, if we're coaching senior adults or older teenagers or potentially a certain level of competition, whether at a certain stage, that's where maybe we might need to start to consider how much of our training week considers restarts. How important is that in your practice design? You know, because I know at the top level, set pieces are a huge factor in how you can create and score goals or uh, prevent the opponent from scoring. You know, and if you look at some of the stats, you know, there's a lot of stats that are out there around number of goals scored from these. I mean, even I was looking at one the other day where West Brom, the majority of their goals, West Brom now in the championship this season, West Brom and Southampton have typically come from corners and throw-ins. Now, does that mean that I'm going to watch that and then go, right, I need to spend 30 minutes or an hour or whatever with the under-10s or under-12s working on throw-ins and corner kicks? No. But, so there's like other battles to pick, isn't there? That's where, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, but that's my preference. I'd be like, that's not priority. That's the least of our problems. What we should be focusing on is how do we build the attack? How do we keep possession of the ball, stay on the ball, but then find creative ways to to get the ball forward, progress the ball forward. And then that should be like a golden thread that runs throughout all the age groups, which is there's a simple concept around because the game's directional. How do we attack together and combine and obviously focus on the individual, combining when necessary, and how do we defend? And that's it. And then as they get older, you can start to go into more unit-specific and maybe some other individual tactical roles as well. But I think when we're talking about game model, it's, well, how much of these percentages are we really work on? That's probably the better question relating to the age is you've got all these sort of moments in the game of how we want to play. What's the magic number or percentage? Why? I don't know if there's a magic number, but what's the, the ideal optimum based on your context, your environment, the players level that you're working with and where they're hoping to be? How much of that do you focus on throwing set pieces, you know, kickoffs, 
this, that, the other, on top of switching play, finishing the attack, breaking lines, you know, <laughs> recognising moments to press high, drop into a mid-block, whatever it may be, you know. So it's like it's recognisable. Actually, on this in this particular context, it might be zero, or it might be two percent, or it might be ten percent compared to the bigger picture. Sorry if that's a bit of a ramble. No, I think you're spot on. I think there's so much to kind of really unpack there, and um, there's three kind of things that really stood out for me in what you just said. And I think it's one, looking at the game formats, right? Because if you go back to that, you know, that U9 piece, U10, and you know, just typically that quote-unquote mini soccer space. There's fundamental differences, and I don't think this is necessarily down to the format. This is probably more down to the age, right? The younger age groups. Well, clearly what you're going to typically see, and I, you know, it would be interesting to get your views on when you think this starts to change, but there's a lot of gravitation around the ball, right? It's just like flies, you know, flies or honey and bees, right? Just The bees just gravitating towards the ball. Um, but obviously, as you start to get older, and I don't think it's just down to the format specifically, but certainly down to age, in my opinion, you then start to see or the profile of the player starts to develop itself or manifest itself in whatever they are. So as an example, you know, you will start to get to see who's who's the you know, let's use your centre forward as an example. Who's the centre forward that's gonna hold up play and look to kind of just receive deep all the time? And who's the centre forward who's comfortable and actually wants to get in beyond and make those darting runs in behind? Which obviously then fundamentally has a impact on how the team will play. Or what the team's opportunities are to create to create goal scoring opportunities, and beyond that, um, the second kind of consideration I had was obviously, well, actually, when the formats do come into play, how does that actually change things? So obviously, you know, we talked, I talked, just mentioned there about age and how that kind of that naturally, as they grow older, they will start to move around in different ways and play the game and operate in different ways. But actually, when does the format start to take an influence on that? So, you know, in many respects, I'm looking at and thinking, well, actually, as 9v9 comes into it, 11v11 comes into it, they've got bigger spaces. So, naturally, they're going to start to look to exploit the areas in different ways. And then it got me thinking about the game model itself and what you said there about making the, you know, that, that forward penetration kind of pass. And it's like, well, fundamentally, we're linking back into what we said last week, right, in terms of the game should just be braced, you know, you should be, in, in, in my opinion coaching the principles of the game and going back to that and letting the players explore what that looks like so yes the game model will be influenced by the players in terms of age and stage also the format of the game is obviously going to have an influence on that and then the profile of the players that works within that but then it's now you know we, we, we've seen that clip right where Guardiola talks about Haaland and how they weren't they weren't utilising him at the start because their game model was based on maintaining possession through lateral and sometimes with backwards passes. But actually, they've got this guy who's at the top end of the pitch, always making these darting runs in behind and never actually getting the ball. So it's almost, what's the outcome that we're going after? Yes, we can still maintain an identity, but there is appropriate moments maybe for the players to pick up on when they might move away from that. And fundamentally, if we're looking at trying to develop players for the top level, they need to be able to establish and recognise those moments without us having to necessarily point it out for them. So how well, you know, how does that actually influence the game model? Should, again, we go back to that conundrum and that dilemma, right? Should there even be a game model or should we just be coaching the players to principles at, such, at, a, at a young age? And I guess what age and stage should we really start to challenge and maybe deviate away from 
a generalized approach and a more specific approach. And then the other, the other kind of thought that came up in my mind as you were speaking was that actually this is probably heavily influenced on the type of environment, right? In terms of what the outcome is for the environment, what the vision is for the environment in that. Is it one about development? Is it about winning? Because if it's about game model and it's about development, well, is it really helping the players develop if they play in a particular way all the time? Or more specifically, if you're going after the, you know, going after the result, then how important is the game model? <laughs> because if you're getting results and you're looking at that end of the spectrum, and whether that's based on age, stage, or just different outcomes in the environments that you're working in, then if they're getting the result, how do you then justify to the players that actually they should be doing it differently, if that makes sense? It's just a few thoughts on what you said. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I mean, that's what I like about this. There's so many ways to sort of unlayer the onion, if you like. I mean, ultimately, to me, the first place we've got to go to is how do you define a game model or what is a game model to you? Because that influences a lot of the topic for conversation because, you know, you talk there about should it be principles or should it be a game model? And, and to me, I know we're going to share our sort of definition you like as well as some other definitions of, of how a game model is defined by different pro clubs and different federations around the world. To me, it's a, a framework that sort of consists of your, your principles across the moments of the game to provide a guideline of how you want to play. Now, that doesn't, to me, it's, it's a set of ideas. Like it's, it's an idea around and it helps to guide what does that look like at U9? What does that look like at U10 or U12 or U19 or whatever? But for some people, it might not be that. You know, it might be a little bit more scripted and that goes to your point around, well, if it's set and it's rigid and it's maybe a different view of the game, is it necessarily relevant? Is that player development? If it's based on working in a certain league or a certain competition of a higher level, is that even relevant? I think ultimately, you know, outside of all these fancy terms, it all comes back to the principles. You know, that's got to be the starting place for everything, which is like, what makes the game the game? And what does their game look like? Because I think to answer some of the things you said before, if we ask that first question of what, what makes the game the game, well, the game's directional, there's two goals, we attack one end, we defend the other, and we do it with one ball. So there's a constant contest for possession. And that, to me, is like the simplest way of looking at it. We are constantly contesting possession of the ball in order to score more goals on the opponent. Okay, how can you do that? Well, if I have the ball, my first checklist as, a, as an action is... Can I score, right? Because it, it, originally it's like, where are you on the field? You know, are you in your own half? Are you close to your own goal? Are you in their half? Are you close to their goal? And then the next one is obviously, can you score? If you can't score, if you can't shoot, because in theory you can shoot from anywhere, then it's all right. Well, if I can't shoot, what influences that? Is it the distance? Is it the opposition? Is it there's pressure on the ball? Is it defenders? Is it someone else is in a better position? Whatever it may be. Okay, so then the next answer is almost in like sequential order, if you like, is pass or dribble, isn't it? When you're in possession. 
And then it's how do you do that? Are you playing around? Are you playing? So if we just think about the game in the simplest way and the principles which exist in every game, no matter what formation you play, what style of play you play, the principles don't change. You need certain types of, you need movement, you need, uh, I know years ago it used to be width and depth, dispersal, penetration, all this stuff. Every club has their own vocabulary, but these things don't change. And I think that's where it's then, all right, how much of this are we going into real detail? I think there almost needs to be a continuum for me as of let's focus more on the principles of play and coach through the principles because it, it, we're in an invasion sport where we're constantly, as I said before, contesting the ball to invade space, right? Territory. And how do you do that? Are you running with the ball? Are you passing the ball? What are you doing? So if we think about it like that, and then we try and look at some of the branches off of that, because obviously there'll be sub-principles and sub-sub-principles, well, then that's when you start to realise, well, hang on a minute, perhaps we only go into the real sort of micro details as they're getting older. It's not to say that you couldn't go into stuff sooner, but because it all depends on the individual, right, and their own journey, and some players chronologically might be here, but technically, tactically, or psychologically, or physically, they may be somewhere else. They might be older, right, than the, the chronological age. But what I'm saying is, is that really at the youngest ages, we should be looking at it as let's just get the brilliant basics right. Let's just get the main principles right, the main principles of attack, the main principles of defend, and give them that foundation where whoever they play for, whatever the coach is and their own idea of the game, those kids should be able to adapt. That's where I think if we create a model that, and by model, I mean that framework of principles across different moments of the game, as they get older, that model can become wider and more comprehensive. And as they're younger, perhaps it's more narrow and focused. Maybe there's an argument, you might say the other way around. Maybe when it's younger, it's broader. And as they get older, it's more narrow and focused. It ultimately depends on what environment you're in, right? As it's, if you're working at a grassroots team where their motivation is literally just to be with the friends are in Division 10 of the lowest league in, the, <laughs> in, the, in their area, they want to have a good competitive experience and they want to improve. But ultimately, it's about the friendships and the groups and all that. Well, then there's your answer. It's not to say you give them a lesser deal. It just is what it is. Then it's like, semi to your point, not so much that the game model isn't relevant to them. That it, a framework is relevant, but it's of how much detail are you going into? And I think that's where we've got to think about, you know, what what are broad strokes and what are more like deep strokes, you know, that depth versus breadth approach. And I think ultimately it depends on the context you're working in. So that influence, that's how the players influence our game model is whatever environment we're in, the principles may be, for example, we've got a, a U12 group here. All we're talking about this season is how we break lines. We're just working purely on basics actions of around passing and receiving the first touch, things like that. But we're just talking purely about breaking lines, playing forward find different ways to do that, whether that's through a dribble, whether that's through a pass, playing through a round. That's all we're talking about. We're literally talking about building the attack. We're not doing set pieces. We're not doing... Every now and then we might say, you know, might do little things in practice where it's like, hey, 
you know, that's a quick free kick to the other team. If or we might do certain conditions where within the training session, um, I'm sure you've seen that session that Ben Bartlett's done before. It's brilliant. Where it's four, four, one touch or four plus, right? Yeah, and it's if you, to encourage managing tempo, but also when to pass, when to dribble. So obviously, if I control it and I can and I pass, that's two touches. It'd be an indirect free kick to the opposition. So it's encouraging them really that if you control it, you've got to stay on the ball and find a solution, which is good because it puts them under those real duels and it recreates their game, which is messy, right? And it gives them those tools that, well, how do you stay on the ball and find different ways to manipulate the ball to create that passing option if it is onto, or how do you dribble or run with it? But then equally, if you can play first time, pop it off first time and then... What that does is it creates opportunities where they're, they're, they're solving problems because they're forced to because of the constraints. But on the flip side of that, not only are you promoting your principles of playing through and how you do that, but you can also embed, hey, free kick to opposition. Right, when we have got these free kick moments, we want to play short. So can, how quickly can we play to order to uh, you know, uh, surprise the opposition? It's like at the younger ages, in a lot of our teams... We do it with Lumbee 11. I'd love to get your thoughts on this if we're talking about game models and players. One factor we've said is, hey, a lot of the kids can't reach the box. <laughs> like, physically, they can't. So in the US, you can't head the ball 12 and under. It's banned, right? So th- there's a challenge there from a mandate from US soccer. And also, the kids physically, there's not many. Of course, you get the odd one. But there's not many that can go bang and hit a corner and hit it direct. And they can't hit it anyway. So what's the point in trying to kick a ball from the corner, which they can't even reach outside the bo- to the box anyway? Everything should be short. So if you're talking about game model, how do players influence it? The physical strength and their ability, that's one way it affects us. So we've said, hey, on set pieces, 77 nine side teams, all short corners. And a lot of the teams don't expect it. Because we want, um, because we believe in what you said, Yaz, staying on the ball, finding creative solutions, and we want our players to get better at that. And also, we want to attack teams. One of the things we do a lot is on kickoffs, we, we just said one simple thing, one message. How can we play forward on the kickoff? Because now you can have, obviously, two people there and you can pass forward. So they'll pass and then they'll just run straight at people. Or sometimes I might just play it through into space and run onto it, right? Versus playing back and inviting pressure where now you're on the back foot and teams are pressing you from the kickoff. So that's like their little ways that we do that. And then as they get older, as an example, it could be okay, it's 11 aside now. Maybe we play a, a tactical ball into that area because we can physically reach that big diag and we might pick off the second ball or we might counter press. Do you know what I mean? Or it might be when to play short corners, when to play long, because you can head it now, and they're physically developed. Or it could be actually, we're not just doing a short corner of whoever's nearest, other different late but quick runs from inside the box that come out that no one expects, or other routines. That's when you're going into like your sub-principles and your sub-sub. Or another example, Yaz, while I'm on the, on the roll, if you like, is... We talk about switching play a lot, right? I hear that a lot. People say, oh, switch the point of attack, switch play, switch play. But there's not many kids at the younger ages that can go bang and hit that diag, right? 
Some maybe can, but there's not many that are physically developed or have got that technique. So then it's the case of, okay, is switching play even a realistic demand or an appropriate expectation for the players? Does switching play look how it looked when we're looking at Trent Alexander-Arnold hitting that diag or a centre-half hitting that diag? Or Robertson hitting the diag. I'm using examples because I've got loads of clips of Liverpool doing it really well. And they'll do it in different ways. So that's where 11 v 11, the principles might look a lot more detailed around switching play. But then if we're talking at the younger ages, it might be okay. Switching play might just be as simple as a play around. How can we connect and find a friend to play around the block? We might not be able to do it in one big pass because of the distance and the physical and all this. But we might be able to do it in a couple of passes around the block. And maybe that's enough. Do you know what I mean? So that, to me, is where you've got to focus on the principles. And as they get older, perhaps you can go into more layers. Or not so much even older. It could be when they're physically ready, when they're cognitively ready, when they're whatever, technically, tactically ready. That's where some things might have a a more complex answer. You know, as I say, the younger age groups, we're scoring a lot of goals off kickoffs purely because teams don't expect us to run straight at them. They're expecting us to pass the ball back and then some idiot kicks it long. Or they keep passing backwards, in which case you're inviting the opposition to pressure in your own half. Whereas our teams, it's no, let's go at them. And then from there, as they get older, we start to talk about more routines. Because again, we're in the US. The best people to study are probably the NFL because they're very good at different rotate, you know, patterns and movements of like how to do a set piece, if you like, because everything is set pieces. So that's when we were going to more those details. So I hope, I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on that and obviously open it up to the room, but I think that's where it starts to, I'm trying to give a couple of examples where I think depending on the A's, depending on the players, that's how it could influence, if we do have a game model, what our expectations are of the players. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think there's a few, you know, good things that you kind of touched on there. Let's start with the last one where you talked about the examples of switching the play, right? And I think, as I'm starting to think about this out loud, it's you can play whatever the, whatever way you want to play, but you need to, I think fundamentally, you need to understand what does it take for this to actually work? What are the tools required for this to happen? It was interesting, I was having a conversation with a coach yesterday um, about a game that they recently played and the, you know, the, the intention was to try and play in behind the opposition. I was saying, yeah, that's, that's all well and good, but have you actually identified whether your players are capable of doing that? Because fundamentally, as you've just kind of given some examples of even switching the player, well, you can, well, you can switch the player, but there's many ways in which it can be done, right? But it's also understanding that what are the tools that the players require or the skills that the players require to be able to make sure that happens in the way that you want it done? And is it the way that you want it done that's most important, or is it the timing and the and the, I guess the relevance of it taking place? So if you want to switch the play, well, why are we switching the play? We're switching the play because we can't go in the direction that we're going in, right? It's congested, and we want to get out and come the other way. Okay, brilliant. So if your players haven't got the ability at this point in time because of the age, the stage, or just technical competency is not there, then do you still want to switch the play? If so, fine. But how does that then look for your players that aren't able to knock the ball and play out in one in one swoop of a kick of a kick, right? And 
I, you know, I'm just thinking about some examples of, of, of players that I've been supporting over the past kind of 12 months and recognising that actually they haven't got that in their locker. So if you, as an example, split the pitch down five lanes, well, they haven't got the ability to knock it across five lanes. They've probably only got the ability to knock it over four. So it might actually be, you know, you have to play a short pass to then knock it over into the, you know, into the second lane to then knock into the set the pass for the four lanes to exist. So it's just looking at those fundamental differences, right? And just identifying that or... Or little things like you're defending third, or is it in behind helping the players understand, okay, we can't do it from our defending third, so can we create an opportunity in our midfield third where we can use that as a space to knock it in behind, if that makes sense. And it's just having that shared understanding of where the players are at, what the players are capable of, and it's not a a, a highlight of what they can and can't do, but it's a, more a, an awareness of what their skill sets are, what their capabilities are, and how that then ties into what the game model actually is or the strategy in that in that moment is for them, but then also giving them enough of an opportunity to understand actually here's how we might want it done. However, these are the these are the tools that were needed to allow it to happen in this way. But currently we don't have that. So it's almost doing a I don't know if it's the right way to describe it, but almost doing like a stock take of what capabilities your team has. Right? Looking at what are the skills, what are the attributes, what are the what are the components that we've actually got here. Um, and how do we utilize those to implement this game model? Right, brilliant. Now, actually, this is, you know, and it's almost got a hierarchy of kind of options, if you like, that we kind of want to work through, right? So it's almost like in an ideal world, we want to be able to knock it over five lanes. Okay, well, we're not able to do that right now. So if we're not able to do that right now, how do we do it? Well, knock it into lane two and then, non- then look it to knock it into lane five if we can make that happen. Okay, if we can't do it that way, how else are we going to do it? Well, it might actually be going through the lanes two, three, four, five, but actually, if fine, if it's going to be that way, what's what's important there? So it's not just making the pass happen, the timing of the pass, the accuracy of the pass, the weight of the pass, the direction. Um, are we playing to the person's right foot, their left foot? What are different ways in which we can start getting a bit more specific about the detail around those short passes that might actually make up the loss of not having the ability to do the long pass? So, you know, just that's where my mind's going in terms of just examining that finer detail and just looking at, well, how well do the players know what the options are for them to achieve a certain outcome? Because the game model might not be dictated dictated on, you know, the option itself, but the outcome. So we would like to maintain possession and work up the pitch by using the switch of play within our structure as an example okay brilliant so we you know if that's part of the identity we like to switch the play here's some ways that we can do it but here's how we want you to approach it and again it just takes my mind back to the principles right the way i look at you know the, if you look at the, just the, the principles of the game and the principles of play in particular we talk about you know we talk about penetration well actually penetration should be the end outcome for every action that you take place right so whenever i'm talking to players I'm always talking about well it's not about driven it's not about passing it's passing in order to penetrate dribbling in order to penetrate there's you know we spoke about this briefly yesterday when, or the other day when we you know when i was saying everything's you know a, a, a pairing of technical components it's not nothing standalone there has to be an outcome you know on the back end of it so it's 
or receiving to play forward or passing to receive in order to play forward. But everything, if you just add that piece on the end of in order to play forward, I think it starts to shape a completely different vision and an outcome for the players to kind of work towards. Again, just a, a bit of a brain dump there, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, there's loads. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And ultimately, I mean, Tony just shared a really good tweet. So, so you know, look at this conversation. Please, again, tap into that experience there because he's hit the nail on the head, which is piggybacking off what you've said, really. For him, it's about principles. And that's a key message that we're all saying here. It's about principles. And he's given a couple of examples with a, with a document he's, he's, he's created. And maybe we can loop him in, you know, to to expand on that. I think where my head's going with what you said there is that there's got to be this constructive alignment between what are the qualities that we're looking for in a player and how does that relate to our idea of how we want to play, right? That's it in a nutshell because if I play your team, we might have this idea of how we want to play. We want all our teams to do this and this and this, but actually we're not capable of doing it. That's what you, I mean, you basically meant. What happens if we're playing your team and you don't allow us to play the way that we want to play? Well, then what? So that's where I think then it becomes that, you know, the FA have done a great job of this around the new UEFA C, which, you know, I wish, look at what I have, what I've gone through now in my own journey, I wish we'd have had this back in the day, you know, because they, we talk about these capabilities of being a, a quality player and, and obviously scanning is one of them, that ability to search for information in order to cope with your own adaptable movement solution. Positioning, which is key, because where do players, once you're gathering that information, how are you, where, when do you move, where do you move? The movement, the deception, the timing. So these are all key qualities that I think influence those principles. And ultimately, it comes back to the individual technical players, doesn't it? And then, you know, I'm happy to, I'll share after this. I'm glad we've got Tony here now. Um, there's a document that we've put together with US Soccer where it almost builds on this. So at U9, U10, your foundation phase, if we're talking about the moment of attacking, which is when we have the ball and we want to play forward through individual actions and, and short combinations to create and score goals... Or what are some of the principles that we're going after? But then ultimately... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One thing that's consistent throughout is scanning with your soccer, receiving, dribbling, finishing. Because ultimately it relates to what you just said. Like It's, it's where they're at. And I, I just find that fascinating. And then how does that relate to the the principles so at those ages, like we're just purely looking at how do we provide options to play forward, how are we breaking lines to advance the attack and finish the attack. But then as you get older, I guess that's when you start going into the sub principles around, you know, how you're you're finding your positioning or finding the free player or whatever it may be. And again, it just becomes more of a layered approach. But everything if if 
your team is doing something that is counteracting the way we want to play, our idea of how the coach wants the team to play, well, then what? Because ultimately, it, it breaks down at individual players, doesn't it? They haven't got the technical toolkit to keep the ball or play the way out of trouble or look for information or receive with the right touch. So then that's where those key qualities for me come into it. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything onto that, but I mean, I'm glad, Tony, you're in. Good evening, chaps. Good evening, everybody. Um, I, just off the back of um, that last little bit that, that, that you were on about, Gerard, where it, teams are, teams will look to cancel each other out in some respects because that's kind of the name of the game in a lot of respects, particularly in situations, I think, where there's a lot of scouting involved. You know, if you're going to look at the opposition's game film, how does that then affect your game model? Because if, you, if, if you're going to change it um, for each opponent, that's a, you know, it's a, a fairly flexible approach. Um, but does it really, does it really mean that you've got a game model? Because actually your game model is something that, you know, if you believe in it, you should live and die by it, not change it every week. Um, just my thought on that particular matter. Um, and then looking again, you were you, you kind of mentioned it a, a minute ago with the the technical toolkit side of it. So I'm looking uh, when Yaz posted it earlier on. How do players influence my game model? I'll go back to the the point that I made last week about a team that were universally derided, universally unpopular, but recruited their players in a certain way uh, who fit a certain physical and, uh, and mental model. The, the, the Wimbledon team of 86, 87, 85, 86, 87, um, and, and a little bit prior to that, who absolutely trounced the league playing a style of football that most people wouldn't cross the road to watch. But they didn't give a toss. So their game model was smash it up the pitch to Big Fash or Stuart Evans or Alan Cork, um, and we'll play off that. Uh, and that their game model got them promoted from non-league to the old first division in, I think, um, five or, or possibly six years and allowed them to turn and stay in the first division for a little while and, and turn Liverpool over in the FA Cup final. Now, it might not suit everybody's. Um, it might not suit everybody's eye, but it's it's an extreme example of sticking to your guns and sticking to your particular principles, even if everybody else is offended by them. Uh, Yaz mentioned earlier on about Harland at Man City, and I wonder, because I have no knowledge of it, if if they would say that their game model has now changed because they've gone from playing with, uh, listen, I hate going into this all false nine and nine and halves and, uh, and all this rubbish, but they've gone from playing with false nines um, and not having a recognised out and out striker to now having the best striker in the world. Has their game model changed in the last two years? Their Pep's principles or the club's principles, if you like, probably haven't changed, but their game model has because of the players that they've recruited. We as grassroots coaches, because that's what I am now, I'm not an academy coach anymore, we 
we our game model has to be based around the players that we've got because we know that we're going to have them for the full season. Um, very few will leave. You will recruit very few others. So I'm going to go back to those principles that that I, that I tweeted out um, on the thread and and just say, look, this is what we've got. Two of my two of my current central midfielders are absolutely tiny little dots at under 14. We've probably got under 12s and under 13s that are bigger than both. But they are incredibly effective players in the way that I'm asking them to play at the minute. So we have to run with it. Um, and I think that that's where most of us uh, will, will probably end up. Yeah, Tony, I think it's a great point, to be honest with you. But I think, you know, just, just listening to what you said about Guardiola, and it's interesting, you mentioned there about the principles haven't changed. Because fundamentally, even if you look at Man City and the way they play, right, their game model is what it is. But fire. people, <laughs> and I've always found this with a lot of people when they look at Man City as an example, or just Guardiola teams in general. For me, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter what team you are, what league you're in, who your manager is, whatever country you're in, the bottom line is this. If there's an opportunity to play forward, you play forward. Guardiola does exactly that. He's just decided that in the way that he wants to play, if he can dominate possession, the dominant possession is not to have a higher possession stat. It's actually just to tease players out of position so they can then take and put advantage of it by playing around them with, you know, with clever movement and short, sharp passing and around them. But fundamentally, if there's an opportunity to drive the ball forward and get in behind, they always do it. So I think, you know, the game models, whatever you want to call them, they're, they're there as just a, a framework. But the principles are fundamentally what guide the decision and the outcome of the players, right? I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but either yourself or Gerald or anyone else that's got anything to share. Um, I know we've got Paul in the room as well. So, Paul, if you've got anything to add on there, feel free to jump in, man. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right in what you say. Um, I just think that the players that you've got will influence how maybe how quickly you do it or where you play that final killer pass. You know, does do I haven't looked at the stats, um, but do City now play more balls over the top? Do they play more longer passes from the defending third into the attacking third because of the you know, the difference if you like between say Aguero and Haaland or Jesus and Haaland yeah, you know they're just one example because if we talk about City, everybody will know what we're talking about. If we talk about my under fourteens, I'm the only person in the room who, who you know who sees that and who knows that. So, yeah, like going for me, it just goes back to those principles. A lot of people um, looked at the uh, the Barcelona when Guardiola was there and then it became the whole tiki-taka thing and people talking about keeping possession for possession's sake. And he's always denied that. He's always said, you know, like you were just saying, the idea behind the, the, the passes is to move players around and then play that killer ball in at the right time, whether that's a, a five-yard pass or a 55-yard pass. The principle doesn't change. It, I've seen other... Um, People quote or um, quote where Guardiola, um, what is it now? Fifteen passes. It takes fifteen passes to get into 
the perfect shooting position. And I just think with, a lot with social media, and it people will just seize on a quote, and they'll, you know, less experienced coaches maybe will suddenly be right. This is it, lads. We've got to make fifteen passes before we can have a shot, which is cobblers. Joe, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Because I think it's interesting, right? Because you know you, you've obviously had an opportunity to work in different countries and different continents. Is 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 the game model that prevalent? Or is it that important ahead of principles? You see that a lot of coaches maybe choose to work towards a game model, right? And and that often deviates away from the principles of the play. I think what Tony just said was spot on. I may I was just pausing for a second, thinking like. There is so much where, if you don't know the origin or the history of the subject that's being shared, it can be dangerous because we're, we're, we haven't got all the facts and then we're assuming and we see a quote or we read a text. I remember that exact one years ago and it was like, you've got to make it within, was it 10 to 15 or whatever to be able to sustain the attack and, and, and get score goals. And then obviously people could take that too literally. And I think that is a problem. I've seen that in a few countries where certain coaches have a, a view on what's new and what's trendy. And then obviously there are others that are, are just, I guess, coaching a game based on a, a framework of how they think it should be played. And it's almost at the detriment, it's not in aid, it's almost at the detriment of, like you say there, like the principles. Because ultimately the, the principle should guide everything we, we think. Like if I had this debate with someone the other day, there was a, one of our coaches was saying, this isn't playing out from the back. So, you know, the, the goalkeeper, it wasn't a punt. It was a genuine attack. The goalkeeper recognised that the, the lad's free. It was a transition moment because he just caught the ball from their attack and he's ran to the edge of the box, the keeper, and he's hit it long. And it was one direct ball, and it hit the forward. We nearly scored off it. And then even on goal kicks, the lad could hit it long. What? And he's like, this isn't playing out from the back. I want you, what are you doing? And he's like shouting at the player, because he's got this perception that playing out from the back is you've got to roll the ball to your centre-halves in your box, or you've got to play short on every goal kick. That's not playing out from the back. And I think that's where sometimes it can be like, is that his game model? You know, so he's like, ha, ah, we all, we want to play. That's our philosophy. Well, no, like the, the principle is find the free player and what's your quickest way to play forward? That's still playing out from the back. If it was just a hail house and we don't know, there's no thought, different argument perhaps, but if that kid's actually recognising something, then we should be rewarding that behaviour. So I'd agree, yeah, I see that. I've seen that a bit. I've also seen coaches design activities where going back to switching play, if you look at the top teams, they do this and then, you know, and a lot of counter-attacks will involve a, a switch of play of some kind, as you know. So they'll be like, right, on transition, we've got to do this. You can only score if you do this. But then the danger becomes is that we're rewarding players in the practice design in a training session. You must go into this wide area before you can score. But then what if he's through on goal, one-on-one? -on -one? Is he going to turn backwards, do an unnatural movement? 
So what I always lead with coaches now is I always say, hey, look at the design of the practice and how is that affecting the player's decision-making, the choices they're making. Would you be happy if he did that on a Saturday? If he's one-on-one and he could just go direct to goal, but he chose not to and he played the ball wide or he decided to go backwards to go wide, what would you say to him? You know what I mean? And that's where I would go with it, as I'd be like, are you happy with how they're playing now? Would you want them to do that on a Saturday? And if the answer's no, well, then why have we designed an activity or a rule based on this preconceived model of the game that detracts away from the basic fundamental principles of the game, which is that it's based on the direction and exploitation uh-huh. of space? So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And it just, even what you just said there, it just reminds you of something I always say to coach as well. What you've got your players doing in training, you're saying well done right now, but if they did that on match day, would you still be praising it? If they were through on goal and they decided, no, I haven't made my five passes yet, what would you say to them? And everyone knows the answer to what that would, what that would be. But so fundamentally, if, if, you're, if what you're asking us to do in training is something you would not commend or praise on match day or encourage, it shouldn't be done in training, as far as I'm concerned. Right, because then you're sending inconsistent messages. You're not actually preparing the players for what the environment is when they get to match day, because you tell again, it's just mixed messages. So I think it's re, you know being really clear in that you can have a way in which you want to play, and that's fine. But one, do the players fit that in terms of their capabilities, their skill sets, and their and their you know their ability to perform the actions required to make it happen? Two, if they don't how are you going to flex and adapt within that? Three, having a way to play is fine, but more importantly, what is the outcome that you're trying to go after? Now, if your game model is taking precedence over the result and not in a way where it's winning at all costs, but if it's if it's actually denying the opportunity for players to take advantage of situations where they can get success in fundamentally do what the game is about, and that's outscore the opposition, then is your game model serving the players and their development, or is it just serving your ego? So I think it's just a couple of things that kind of just really popped out for me as you guys are talking there. I don't know if, what your thoughts are, if anyone's got anything else they want to add or share, or even just unpack on anything that's been discussed so far. No, I think it's just one thing I, I would probably say to a lot of people listening is, just try and be as curious as you can because one thing that's been really advantageous to me is working in different countries. I'm not going to lie because it's like there's one thing seeing something on YouTube or Y Scout or whatever you want to use. Um, another website I've used a lot, I'd encourage people to try out is Hez Goal, H E S Goal, because when I was working in Morocco, it allowed me to watch games uh, online for free anywhere in the world. Um, so like loads of like there's a ton of sites that you can tap into but obviously immersing yourself in a culture or if you've ever got that afforded that opportunity I think it's just really good you know because the way that the US play is completely different to the way the Moroccans play which is different to the Brits which is different to this one and that one I think that's where you, you start to see the game so differently because people do have their sort of unique traits if you like and preferences and I mean I noticed it's really prevalent when we were playing teams like Ghana and things like that to 
other teams, and it was like it was a very clear identity and a, an idea. And I remember years ago, um, it was something that I took a little bit when I was doing the Advanced Youth Award, and um, the current technical director at the time was with Tottenham, John McDermott, and he'd been around the game a long time at Leeds and various roles with the FA and in and out. And he said he, he had this vision that you can always identify a Tottenham player. If you were to put a shirt and you're playing a game and there was no badges and the, the kits are neutral, let's say, you didn't know what team they were coming from, you'd be able to spot a Tottenham player from any other player just by the way he moves, by the way he, he, he handles himself, his body language, the way he manipulates the ball. And I do like that concept. And I think that's where it comes really down to those not just the principles, but your model should really be like, well, how do you want your players to play? What is that brand? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that would be one thing I want to leave on is, what is that idea? Because over here, there's one team that was set up by an ex-Paul um, Martin, you know, an ex-United player. And he set up a huge club, quite a reputable club in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And they're called Legends. And they're a big club and... and you can always tell a legends player because they're just he's got this emphasis on attacking qualities and dribbling with the ball and staying on the ball and freestyling and skills to the detriment and that's maybe another concept for another day or maybe today I, we often use it as a negative like as much as it's great we're like oh, you can always tell a legends player because all they want to do is dribble they just want to run at people do random stepovers in the wrong areas at the wrong times just do they do silly things, and they haven't got that concept of you know combining with a teammate or whatever. Now on the flip side of it, it's ten out of ten for encouraging creativity and things like that. And that's to me where it's like that fine balance between you know if you've got a continuum if you like or a spectrum, the John McDermott Tottenham player, clear identity and a good brand of how they want to play. And those non-negotiables, you know, I used to work for Rochdale and we had these non-negotiables around, you know, runs to receive, runs to retrieve and runs to deceive. And that existed in everything that we did. So no matter what you're running, you're working really hard to get on the ball. How many times are you offering to receive? And it's interesting if you look now at the World Cup, the last two World Cups, men and the women, the teams that got through to the the furthest rounds, the most successful teams have the highest statistics of offers to receive compared to those that weren't as successful. And we were doing it, you know, back then and how you move in and then the, the, the non-negotiables of tracking your runners, getting back. And obviously Rochdale, teeny tiny club, but had a lot of players that have gone on and done really well, haven't they? You know, over the years, like a huge list of players. As a lot of the Cat Freeze have done where they've supported the the, the pyramid, if you like. And I think that's where it's like, where you are on that continuum. Are you over here? Or are you a, and not in a negative way, I'm, I'm using legend, it could be many other clubs I could name, where it's like, their identity is clearly visible, but it's almost to the detriment of the players in some cases. Because as much as we're promoting this, we're inhibiting them in other areas. So it's like, what do you want that brand to be? And how does that, affect the players long term and I think that's a huge sort of question for all of us to have and you know maybe even another question to ask is if I was to turn up would I be able to spot your team because I'd like to think I don't know but I'd like to think anyone they'd be able to tell I'm sure it'd be the same with Tony and you and Paul and many others who are listening 
they could probably tell a team that's been coached by Tony. You'll pro- there'll probably be certain things that you can tell in a Tony team. Like, there will be. Whether it's their attitude when they lose the ball or whatever it may be. And, you know, irrespective of how long he's been working with them, that'll be a consistent throughout. And I think that's a good place to start. Is like, what do you want that idea, that brand to look like? You know? I think you're spot on, mate. And I think, you know, that identity piece is key. But as much as you've got those players that might be Tottenham players or, in this case, Tony players, they just that's just a small piece of who they are, right? Because we don't want them to be complete robots and following every single word. We need them to have their own mind and their own awareness of the game and be able to take the ownership and make those respons- responsible decisions themselves. I think it's a great point. Johnny, good evening, mate. How are you? Hey, boys. It's been a while. Doing really well, thank you. Um, I've just joined in at the right time, talking about identity. So I've, I've taken over at the local community club and this is at the forefront of my mind at the moment, so I'll, I'll definitely listen back. But what I'm going to pose is is I'm not going to take a football approach to it. I'm going to take, as I've mentioned a few times before, the, the redhead, bluehead approach to start off. And I would just like to hear your thoughts on kind of maybe taking more of the a view on that opposed to taking the reins and trying to impart the, just as you're talking about, the sort of Tony style of football or the Tottenham style. Um, and yeah, I've been enjoying it for the last sort of 10 minutes. It's good to be back in for a wee bit. Good to hear you boys. I, I, I liked it when you, you mentioned it before. I have used it once or twice in previous roles where I just talked about certain kids going like, hang on a minute, like in this moment, if they're rushing across as one boy who was forcing the ball to, to go in, he was panicking. And we explain what it is. And I'm, I'm assuming we're on the same definition anyway. And I, and I was saying, he recognised himself. I'm a redhead. All right, how would you become a bluehead? How would you play cool, calm? And his crossing ability was much, much better. Um, I've used it a lot. I stole it from England rugby, uh, which is when I first saw it. a guy called Russell Earnshaw was doing it in an England rugby camp and it was amazing. And I, since then, I've been using it a lot, redhead, blueheads. I've even been using it with my own kids, actually. So I swear, joke aside, I've talked to a little boy. I'll be like, he's like, yeah, I'm a redhead. I've lost it. And it's like, all right, how do you how do you come back down? How do you calm? What strategies can we use to calm you? How do you go from a redhead to a bluehead? And um, I think it's any psychological tool that you can use to influence players autonomy, their ability to self-regulate, I think is really, really important and powerful because, you know, and I think that's where you sort of lead in with it a little bit, Yaz, right? Is that you said, like, ultimately the players and that point. I think there has to be this tenant, if you like, in everything that we do that is autonomy support or self-regulation, whatever word you want to use or self-learning or whatever. Because ultimately they need to, to be able to regulate their own bodies, their emotions, and be able to drive their own learning performance. It can't just be us controlling from the sidelines. So I think you bang on, Johnny, and I think the more strategies we can give players to understand those type of things, talk about it, you can then lead yourself into more scenario coaching, which can link back to your principles, but also the moments you're in. You know, what if you are 1-0 down? What if you are playing in a final and you've got 10 men and you can't make a substitution? Then what? You know? Um, we do a lot where we'll use certain rules from other sports to influence the game 
and also we play in different competitions as well. So like some of our teams are in uh, national league competitions where in other leagues it's roll on roll off subs, so you can go you can do whatever you want. Whereas in other competitions it's like if we sub you now you can't go back in. So it's almost like the adult game. And in others it's if we sub you we can't sub you back in until the second half. So once you took off you're off. And what happens if you get an injury? What happens if something happens, you know? So, like, you're going to have to deal with certain strategies that might occur on the field. Um, I think anything that you can do around self-regulation to to influence those moments in a game that can occur, I think is really good stuff, Johnny. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, Yaz, or if that answered your question or thoughts, Johnny. No, it's it's good. It's it's. I think the, the thing that gets me is just once you... It's like most people on this, as soon as you start thinking about football, it's just like a snowball rolling down a hill. You know, it just grows and it grows and it grows. And, you, you know, you have your idea of this will be my three things. And then a week later, you've got 50 things. You're trying to narrow it back down again, you know, and it's it just I don't know why we do it. I asked my friend the other day who was in the same role. I says, why do we do it? Football just drives us mad, which is why I think I've gone down the sort of the redhead, bluehead mode. So if we can get players to to regulate or understand or even know what it is um, when it comes to the youngest ones, the fun fours, fun fives, we're, we're the wasps. So I'm going to have like angry stinging wasp versus like a calm flying wasp sort of thing to make it relatable as well. But no, I, I'm loving it and, and just keep it up, boys. I love it. I love it. And that. Another thing we've been doing as well, I mean, I've also talked about with coaches is greenhead, redheads, as in like a slightly different context, but still similar. If that kid arrives as a redhead, what are we noticing? So like red as in like they're off the bar, they're in a bad mood or something's going on different to normal or they're just disinterested or whatever. So if they come as a red, how can we make sure that because they're in our environment and we're in control of that, they leave as a green, right? And it's that safe place that they always want to come back and they love coming to practice. And then equally, if they come as a green and they leave as a red, that's another problem. And sometimes it happens. And I think sometimes it happens and coaches don't even realise it's happened. You know, and I've been guilty of this, where we can get so consumed in the session plan, right? And the session, and it, we think, God, that was a really good practice tonight. And for the most part, it probably was. But there might have been one boy or girl in that session that's gone, actually, it wasn't good for me, purely because um, maybe they didn't get enough shots on goal or maybe they were pigeonholed in a position throughout the whole activity and they never got opportunities to do anything else. Or we just didn't consider what they wanted in that particular session. We didn't give them what they wanted or what they needed. And we think they did because we all worked on possession and, you know, Yaz's favourite rondos or whatever people are doing. I'm just using language that people are familiar with. But then, ultimately, for the kids, like I didn't get you know an opportunity to do this. So then, I think we've messed up there. We've messed up big time, you know. And that's where, for me, it's if they arrive as a green, they leave as a, a, a super green. If they arrive as a red, can you get them as a green? You know. And we we also use that analogy. And what we started doing is um, similar to you. I love the wasps and things like that. We've done things like with emojis just to get a flavour. So I've had kids write on the whiteboard what, you know, basically your mood today, describe it. And some have done a winky face, some have done a smiley face, some have done a sad face, some have done a bloody whatever random face. I mean, 
you get some all kinds of wacko things. It's pretty cool. But then you start to get into the, what their personality is, their individualism. And I think another thing is you actually go, well, hang on a minute, he's got a sad face. You know, we did this on a, a coaching course and you could try this with players. We had um, nine, I think it was nine pictures of different cats. I don't know if you like this one, Johnny, or not, or anyone listening. There's like loads of different random cats. And you've got cats that are like angry and about to strike. You've got cats that are like falling asleep and like legs are blooming spread and everything. Got what, God knows what's going on. You've got cats that are a little bit chill and all the emotions you can imagine. And they're listed like one to nine or whatever it was. It was like, what number are you? Off you go. And it was interesting because someone would be like, I'm number five, I'm number five, I'm definitely number three, I'm probably number eight. And you start to go, okay, where's everyone arriving? Like how are they arriving to your environment? And then how does that influence how you change? And I think that's a huge part. We don't always, as you say, talk about is we've got all these things about game models and principles and all that. But ultimately, are they dialed in or not? Because that'll influence how successful we are in the mission anyway. Yeah, Johnny, you got your hand up. Just on this point, buddy, um, it's I, I love the cat thing, but I love it from in terms of the use of language. So it, that's language or pictures that they would understand. And I think sometimes we forget that as adults, we can kind of roll our eyes at certain things or use the wrong words. So just in terms of that, I mean, I, I think it's a it's I think with a bunch of youngsters at a camp, we'd probably be quite funny, but just don't forget how important that use of language is. 100%. I'll try and I'm going to try and get the um, image and share it on Twitter. It'll make people laugh. <laughs> Just on that, I think it's really important, you know, Johnny, that point that you made there. For me, and again, this is, these are ongoing conversations I'm having with coaches at the moment around the importance of that language. Um, I remember speaking to a coach just a couple of days ago, and the, you know, the coach was suggesting that you know they don't have enough um, examples or you know analogies because I'm I'm big on using analogies. But what I try to explain to the coach is that that's just the way that I understand things. It, the bottom line is this: it doesn't matter what language you use, as long as it's something that the players get. Do the players understand what you what you're talking about when you say something? So, if you know, for one, some weird reason, you say number one, and they they understand exactly what that means in the context of what they need to do in this process. Who cares? The the language is it's just it's got to be relevant to them. It's got to make sense to them. So even when you're working with those younger players and you're using things like wasps and cats and whatever whatever works for them, you know, I, I came up with an analogy the other day where I was where I was trying to help players understand when to kind of tuck in and when to kind of spread out and you know I just basically use the analogy of your light of a lighthouse so if the person on the ball's the lighthouse well where is the lighthouse where can the lighthouse see what's the lighthouse is a field of vision well it's wherever the lighthouse is looking right so okay fine if the lighthouse is not looking in your direction that's your trigger to kind of tuck in if the lighthouse starts looking your direction the ball's probably going to be coming in your direction so can you spread out so just responding to little things like that. And I mean, this is just how I view it. So I think it's really important to understand it's not about what language you use or how you use the language. It's do the players get it? And I think that's, you know, it's just, it just, I just wanted to add that point there. No, it's great to see so many new faces. I know we've had a, 
a lot of engagement and a lot of people tuning in after. You know, in some of the previous episodes we've run, we've had around 3,000 or more people tune into these events. So, you know, thank you to everyone who keeps coming. And we're really excited. There's a self-reflection form that we've shared. Uh, so, again, you know, if you want, if you're with the, the FA and you're using this as an event to revalidate your licensing in any way with the FACPD, this event is accredited through Middletex. Uh, FA, so again, a good opportunity there to, to gain the FA CPD and even listen back to previous episodes from August 27th where we started with why do I need a game model to last week which was more around where do I start in creating a game model and then tonight where we're looking at how do players influence my game model so it's a, this is part of a wider series that we're spreading across this month we have got a webinar coming up on developing a game model on September 19th. So if you're available and interested, uh, please feel free to register for that. It will be available on demand as well. So even if you can't tune in live, there'll be a recording that's uploaded to the app um, that we'll be able to use as well. And again, just keep coming to these opportunities, sharing ideas, contributing. You know, we're really excited to, to keep growing these spaces and, and support coaches across the platforms as much as we can. Anything from your end, Jazz? No, just to kind of echo what you said, you know, it's great to see so many new faces, you know, we, you know, week in, week out, we're seeing some, you know, different people joining and, you know, it'd be great to kind of not just have people listening in, but people sharing some, you know, their their experiences, their, you know, their recollections of past experiences that they've had and just anything of, of interest, really, because I think it's important for us to understand as well as us, you know, having these conversations, leading these conversations and, continue to grow the community i think how we can maybe compound the impact and influence here is by sharing those experiences everyone in the room's got them uh some of us are often thinking things that other people are thinking and maybe no one's saying anything so it's just it's good to kind of get those little nuggets thrown in those little questions thrown in those little thoughts shared just so that we can kind of extract more from one another and just to keep doing what we continue trying to do and that's just grow this you know like-minded coaching community so that we can continue developing and being the best coaches that we can be Tony, I see you came off to speak for a second or the, uh, the mute for a second. So I don't know if you wanted to add anything there. No, it was a, an accident. Sorry. <laughs> no problem, man. Too many rondos for you, I see. Um, but, Gerald, on that note, I think it's probably worth wrapping up. Guys, um, feel free to kind of get in touch with myself and Gerald. Make sure you're following us. We are going to be back next week um, for what will be the fourth part of this four-part series. Um, ahead of the webinar, which Gerard has mentioned there. Gerard, I don't know if you just want to give everyone a brief insight on how they can access the CPD hours. Yeah, so by obviously listening to this event, that's part of it. The, the most important is completing the self-reflection form, which has been shared within the chat. So if everyone clicks on that link, if you haven't registered with us, if you have, there's a, there's a link on Yaz's Twitter handle you can go to where you'll be able to, again, register for our whole series of events, keep up to date on all the emails that we send out. Um, if not, the main most important thing for gaining the, the FACPD is completing that self-reflection form, which I've shared in the chat. And it's a really short and sweet email. It's a post-module task. And it's just looking at what are the key takeaway messages for you or what stuck out to you, or maybe perhaps what's still swirling around. All you have to do is put your name, your full name, uh, the space that you attended. So, for example, today, 
which would be September 10th, and the, the topic, your email address, and then most importantly, your fan number, if you're looking for that FACPD. And then briefly let us know about your experience, your background, because we're able to look at that and see who's engaged in this type of stuff. And as I say, the task around the self-reflection, then you're done. So it's a really short and sweet Google uh, Doc. We have a lot of coaches that have completed it already. Each event is accredited of an hour CPD. So there's up to six hours CPD in total for this developing a game model series that's up for grabs. And for tonight, you know, by tuning in, completing the self-reflection, you get the full one hour, uh, which is great. So and all these will also be uploaded onto the the Coaches Network uh, podcast as well, you know, through Yaz as well. So there's not only listening to the Twitter spaces, you get more opportunities to just revisit stuff as well. Awesome. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.